passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Today's scripture reading is from John 20, 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It conquered each of us at different moments. Sure, we wanted to remain faithful. We wanted to remain when Jesus was arrested in the garden. But nothing could prevent us from falling to the great terror that we experienced. Some of us fell on Thursday. I was one of them. My name is John Mark, and I'm a follower of Jesus. And even though I was a follower all those years ago, it didn't stop me from running and fleeing in the garden. That Thursday started like any other day. We celebrated the Passover with Jesus Celebrating the great deliverance that God had for his people Israel all the way back during the time of Moses. After supper, Jesus brought a crowd of us out to the Mount of Olives, a place that was overlooking the city of Jerusalem. When we got to the Mount of Olives, he brought us into a a garden called Gethsemane, a grove where Jesus had often taught us in parables. I remember with fondness how often times I would rest my back against a large, sturdy trunk of an olive tree and listen to Jesus teach us about God. I remember sitting there in the garden while Jesus would laugh with us, would play with us. But that Thursday night, there was no laughter. That Thursday night, there was only fear, confusion, and shame. Jesus, when we entered into the garden, told a number of us to stand watch, to be alert. He continued on with Peter, James, and John. Later, Peter told me that he had given them the same command. I wanted to remain faithful. I wanted to stand watch. So imagine my disappointment, my shame, when I was awoken a few hours later to the sound of a crowd entering into the garden, to the smell of burning torches. I was confused, and so I decided to follow the crowd, not sure where they were going, but with each step that I took, I realized with more and more clarity they were headed for the cave where Jesus often prayed. Growing up in the Roman Empire, threats and oppression weren't anything new. That was part of living under Roman rule, was to experience threats from them. We'd also experienced threats from the Jewish leaders of the day. They made it no secret that they didn't like Jesus. They didn't really like us either. But there was something different about that night. As the crowds moved on Jesus, every single pore of my body was soaked with doom and dread as they moved to Jesus to arrest him. 
And then something even more confusion. Something even more confusing. Something that I did not expect. One of us, a fellow follower, a friend, Judas, walks out of the crowd. Walks to Jesus. And kisses him on the cheek. What's going on? Had Judas been captured by this mob in Jerusalem and brought to Jesus for a ransom? As I looked at his face and saw the sickening smile on it, I realized that wasn't the case. And as Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek and turned back to the crowd and said, This is he whom you seek. I was sick to my stomach. The smile on his face wasn't the smile that all of us, his friends, had grown to love, to appreciate, to admire. It was a smile of a man who had thrown in his entire lot with the winning side, forsaking everything that he had stood for. It was a smile of malice, of which I would all too soon become aware of. After he had moved on Jesus had kissed him on the cheek. The crowds began to come to Jesus, ready to bind him. And Jesus said, it is time. As they reached to bind Jesus, I wanted to do something. I wanted to move. I wanted to defend Jesus, but I was frozen in place. Part of me wanted to run as far away from him as I possibly could to save myself. But my legs were like pillars of stone stuck in the ground. Peter was the first one to move. Peter, the zealous fisherman, reached at his side and grabbed his dull, pitiful, rusty sword and swung it at the throat of the man who reached for Jesus. Of course, Peter was a fisherman, and he wasn't all that good with a sword. And so when the man ducked his head out of the way, he missed, slicing only his ear. Blood had been spelt. The crowd was ready to attack. We would have died if it wasn't for Jesus speaking with the authority that only he could speak. Said, enough. Enough. The crowd froze. Undoubtedly surprised at the power and the force that this meek and mild teacher had just spoke. That one word. Enough. It undoubtedly saved my life that night. As we were all frozen in silence, staring at Jesus, he walked over to the man who Peter had tried to kill and reached for his bleeding temple. He touched it and healed it. Oh, how I love this man. Even in the face of his own arrest, he does not lift a hand unless it's to heal. Oh, how I love this man. Even when he is faced with his own demise, does nothing but bless those who come to betray him. As they began to bound Jesus, I looked and saw my other disciples, other fellow followers of Jesus, frozen in the same way that I was. And I could see the wheels turning in their head, reaching the same conclusion that I had reached just moments earlier. We had thought that Jesus was the Messiah. We had thought that Jesus was the one who came to deliver Israel. We had thought that Jesus was our hope. But there would be no hope that day. 
if Jesus was the Messiah, if Jesus was the one that our forefathers spoke about, that the prophets had predicted, then he was a failure. And if he wasn't the Messiah, then we have been deluded. And that thought, as it sunk into my heart, terrified me more than any other thought had, that Jesus was either a failure or a fraud. That there was no hope for us. That our Messiah was being arrested. As I was looking at my fellow followers, I felt a man grab my shoulder. As he touched me, it's like the spell that kept me frozen in place broke. And I tried to squirm out of his grasp, trying to get as far away from him as possible, but it was too late. He had a grasp on my tunic. And so I continued to struggle until eventually I wrenched myself free, leaving my tunic in his hands. And I fled from the place, fled from that garden completely naked, thanking God with every breath that I took, that I knew the location of the trees and the rocks better than my pursuers did. I continued running with one goal in my mind, to get as far away from the garden, to get as far away from Jesus as I could. I don't know how long I ran. It could have been an hour. It could have been two. It could have just been five minutes. But eventually I stopped. And as I stood in the pale Judean moonlight, the significance of what I had just done hit me. Hours before, when we had eaten with Jesus, I had thrown my voice in with the lot who said that we would never forsake him, that we would never betray him. And yet here, just a few hours later, I stood alone, cold, naked in the Judean wilderness. It was fitting for me to be standing there naked, the height of shame in the Jewish culture for a Jewish man such as myself. My outward shame that I showed was perfectly representing the inward shame that I experienced for what I had done, for my betrayal of Jesus. And there in the wilderness, I bowed before God and pleaded with him for, for him to forgive me. But there was no answer. There would be no rest that night. There would be no comfort. For I had forsaken the great comforter. I don't know how long I walked around numb to my surroundings. I don't know how long I walked through the streets of Jerusalem unsure of where I should go. But eventually, I wound up at the door of the house where we had shared our final meal with Jesus. Ashamed, I knocked on the door, asked the man who owned the house if he had an extra set of clothes. And he brought me upstairs to this very room, to the place where we had celebrated our last meal with Jesus. And as I sat there, alone, 
the weeping became too much for me. And I curled up into a ball. I had forsaken God that night. And he had forsaken me. I don't know how long I slept. But I was awoken to the sound of the door opening. I panicked, thinking that my pursuers had found me. I headed towards the window, ready to throw myself out and flee again. When I heard a voice say, John, Mark, is that you? In the voice, I heard the same mixture of shame and self-loathing that I myself felt in every fiber of my being. And I said, Matthias? It was Matthias. Matthias was another follower of Jesus who was at the garden. He shared with me what had happened after I had been captured. He said that after I fled, all of the rest of the disciples of Jesus fled, trying as fast as they could to get as far away from Jesus as possible, leaving in every direction. Matthias had headed for Bethany to the house of Lazarus. But as he reached the house of Lazarus, he was about to knock on the door, but then panicked, thinking that that might have already been too late, that they might have already gone to Lazarus's house looking for Jesus. And so he turned around came back to Jerusalem, and much as I did, began wandering the streets of Jerusalem until he ended up at this very house. His story was a story of shame, of regret, of failure, just like mine was. As he was staring, sharing that story, Saul, another follower of Jesus, came and shared a similar story. He had experienced the same self-loathing that we had. And as we sat there, early on Friday morning, we tried to force ourselves to eat, but we couldn't because we were afraid that we were going to get sick. And of course, not eating made us even weaker, which made us even more fearful. It was a vicious cycle. Minutes passed. It seemed like years. And finally the sun began to creep up. More disciples came. Levi, John Barjonas, Alphaeus. And they shared similar stories. You would think that we would be comforted by the fact that there were so many of us together, that we would be able to comfort one another in our grief, in our sorrow, in our shame. But every disciple that showed up at the door actually just made us more terrified. For so many of us had thought to come to this place, what if one of us had been captured? And being captured, what if they gave us up? The terror continued to increase until nine in the morning. Then we heard our first real news of what had happened to Jesus. After Jesus had been arrested in the garden, he was brought before the Jewish leaders. They sentenced him to death. And from there, he was brought before Pilate. Pilate was the only one who could actually order Jesus' execution. And he resisted it at first. But eventually, he decided that Jesus would be crucified. That he would be killed for treason against the Roman Empire. Joseph, the one who brought this news to us, 
shared with us the horrors that Jesus had experienced in his punishment and his torture that morning before he came for it was too much for him to handle. He brought us this news, this terrible, terrible news of what had happened to Jesus. The hours continued to creep by until noon. At noon, a strange, horrible darkness covered all of Jerusalem. More of Jesus' disciples showed up at the door sharing that they had seen Jesus hung on a cross. That they had seen Jesus crucified, left to die. Surely this great darkness was a sign of judgment upon us for our betrayal, for forsaking Jesus. The hour continued to pass until it was 3 p.m., the hour of the evening sacrifice. And as we heard the horn of the shofar off in the distance, signifying the great evening sacrifice, the earth shook. This was an earthquake like none of us had ever experienced before. We were left begging God for our lives, and he mercifully spared them. Although we don't know for how long. It wasn't until John, Jesus' closest friend, appeared that we realized the significance of what had happened when the earth had shook. Jesus had died. Beaten beyond human semblance in the morning, he had been hung on a cross. And hanging on the cross, he was mocked by those who hung with him. Mocked by those who stood watch. And he died. Jesus had died. Jesus had loved us. Jesus had taught us. He had shown us how to trust God. He had given us Direction, meaning in our lives. Now he was gone. There was no chance for us to make things right. There was no way for us to right these wrongs, to beg him for forgiveness. For he was gone. They say distance makes the heart grow fond. That wasn't the case that night. The impassable distance that separated us from our leader left us without purpose, without meaning. Clinging to the shame of fear that we would carry with us to our graves. The Sabbath began on Friday night without so much as a sound. The Sabbath was the day where Jesus had performed so many of his miracles, where he had healed so many of so many different afflictions, where he had taught us so many different things. Jesus had even said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. But now the Sabbath would begin without its Lord. Jesus had told us that the Sabbath was meant for a day of rest. A time for us to rest from our labors, 
from our anxieties, but there would be no rest that night. There would only be fear and despair from the great cloud that hung over us. Friday was bad. Saturday was even worse. On Friday, we held on to the hope that one day we would be able to beg Jesus for forgiveness, that we would be able to reconcile ourselves to him someday. But with Jesus gone, there was nothing to mute the fear. There was nothing to muffle the shame. It tore into each of us like a rabid dog, leaving us on a long, lifeless Saturday, mourning, grieving, and feeling shame. It wasn't until about noon that John finally broke the silence by asking the question that each of us had wrestled through, that each of us was thinking of, when he said, what now? What comes next? Was Jesus a fraud? Was Jesus a failure? Did God fail Jesus? Are we going to have to flee Jerusalem under the cover of darkness and head to Galilee? What now? And when John shared these words, it's like a floodgate began to open and everyone began pouring out the anxieties that they were feeling, that they were trying to keep to themselves. The anxieties increased into bickering and disagreements and from bickering and disagreements, it came into the worst part of all, the blame shifting and the false accusations. As a way for us to cope with our own grief, to cope with our own shame, we began to blame one another for the fact that Jesus was dead. That Jesus had died. Jesus, if you could see your followers now, you'd be so ashamed. Trying to cope with our grief by blaming one another for your death. God, forgive us. The afternoon continued. And then finally, in the evening, we decided that we must force ourselves to eat. Many of us hadn't eaten for over 48 hours. And so we gathered around the table where Jesus had last eaten with us. And as we passed the bread and as we passed the cup, we became nervous that this would only increase our shame and our self-loathing. But surprisingly, as we broke the bread, as we shared the cup with one another, we were left strangely comforted. Jesus had told us to do this, to have this meal in remembrance of him. Maybe he knew what he was talking about. Maybe he knew that we would all fall away. Maybe he knew that this would be a way for us to connect with him, to remember him, to fellowship with him. Sunday came with a great knock on the door. We sprung to action thinking that this was finally it. The moment where our captors had come to capture us. Some of the disciples in the room actually grabbed some of the lamps that were sitting there. Ready to hurl them at their attackers as they came through the door. It would have been laughable if it wasn't so pitiful. And we weren't so terrified. A knock at the door and silence. A second knock at the door 
and no more. Finally, a voice. It was the voice of a woman. It was Mary Magdalene, the woman that Jesus had healed of her evil affliction many months ago, who had followed us around, doing whatever she could to serve Jesus. Mary Magdalene. As she walked into the door, she was bombarded by questions of what was happening and what was going on, all of which she ignored. And she found Peter and she found John and shared with them the most disturbing news yet. She had gone to the tomb to prepare Jesus's body for burial, to anoint it. And when she got there, the stone was rolled away. Jesus's body had been stolen by grave robbers on the Sabbath. Peter and John went to investigate this news and they left us. And it seemed like they were gone for an eternity. But in all reality, it was only an hour or so. And when they returned, John was strangely silent. But Peter confirmed the words of Mary Magdalene. They had gone to the tomb. They had seen the stone rolled away. But Peter had ducked his head into the tomb and seen that Jesus' body was gone. But then something even more confusing. The clothes that Jesus had been buried in were folded up and left in the tomb. Had the grave robbers, the ones who came to disgrace Jesus' body, stripped it naked to continue the horror that Jesus had experienced on Friday? If they had no respect for the dead, then surely they would have no respect for us when they found us, trying to destroy this movement of Jesus. One of the disciples suggested that we lock the door for fear of what the Jewish authorities would do to us. And we all thought that that was a good idea. And so the door was locked. That evening, we began sharing stories of Jesus. Our favorite stories of what he had done for us. It was often therapeutic for us to think of, of what our master was like. Of what he had done for us. I didn't say much. But I laughed at the stories of Jesus' humor. I cried at the stories of Jesus' great grace shown to people like the woman at the well in Samaria. And I silently thanked God for the wonderful teaching that he gave us. Peter was sharing his favorite moment of Jesus, his favorite memory, when Jesus had called him to follow. He shared the story of the great miraculous catch of fish. How he had bowed before Jesus and said, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. But he couldn't continue the story when he got to the part where Jesus said, follow me. Peter broke down and we knew what was going through his mind. Jesus had called him to follow. And in the moment when Jesus needed him most, Peter had not followed. He had fled and denied Jesus. The silence in the room was deafening. And you could see that everyone was thinking of the same thing. Of their own calling to follow Jesus. Some of us have been called to follow Jesus after a great miracle. Like for Peter. Some of us have been called to follow after a great display of forgiveness like Levi. I remember the first time I met Jesus. 
I'm from Jerusalem. I know this city well. But about a year and a half ago, I heard word of a great teacher from Nazareth. One who spoke with the same sort of power that hadn't been seen since the prophets of old. I begged my father to let me go and see him, but he said it was too dangerous. It was too dangerous for me to go at such a young age. And so I patiently waited for Jesus to eventually come to Jerusalem. About a year ago, he came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. I was overjoyed and went to the temple to hear him teach. And as I heard Jesus teach, I thought with wonder how I could listen to him teach for days on end without a break. He often taught us in parables and stories that were difficult for us to understand. But after the crowds had dispersed, when there were groups of 50, 100, 200 remaining, he would explain to us the parables. He would explain to us what he had taught. I remember one time I was sitting at Jesus' feet, a little closer than normal. And even though we had never met, he looked at me and he smiled. And said, John, who is called Mark, the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. Will you follow me? The thought of Jesus' words, will you follow me, brought me back to the present moment. Jesus had called me to follow him. He had called me to follow. And yet, just like everyone else, I had betrayed him. I had left him. There was no hope for me. The silence continued until I heard a cry from the other side of the room. I looked up and in the waning sunlight, I could see an odd figure, an unfamiliar figure in the middle of the group. I panicked, thinking that the moment had finally come, that this was the moment when we would be captured and put to the same death that Jesus experienced. One of the disciples, who was a little braver than I, ran at the man, ready to tackle him so the rest of us could escape. But as he was running at him, the man opened his voice and spoke with a voice that sounded like the choirs of angels in heaven and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you with you. I knew that voice. It was the voice of the one who had taught in parables. It was the voice of the one who said enough in the garden. It was the voice of the one who had called me to follow that year ago. It was Jesus. But it couldn't be. I was surrounded by my friends, men that I trusted, who had said that they had seen Jesus crucified, that they had seen the spear pierce his side, that they had seen the tomb closed with Jesus in it. How could this be? And Jesus, sensing this mixture of confusion and joy and fear, raised his hands and said, See where the the nails pierced my hands, and lifted his tunic and said, See where the spear pierced my side. It is me. And with those words, the disciples flonged to Jesus, ready to see his hands, ready to see the nail scars in his feet, ready to see the scars that laced his brow from where thorns had been just days before. But I hung back. 
Jesus seemed the same, but he also seemed different. He had the same smile. He had the same gentleness. But also, there's a sense of dread being in his presence. I wanted to run to him and bow before him, but also at the same time, I wanted to back away from him for fear of what he would do, what he would say to me. But I was drawn to him. And so I continued moving forward. And as I was moving forward, he said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus said these words to a band of failures and traitors. How could he be sending us in the same way that his father had sent him? Surely none of us deserved such grace. Tears began to stream down my face as I was thinking of this good news that we had been given until finally I was face to face with him. I looked at his eyes, which burned like fire. I looked at his face, which glowed like the sun itself. And he smiled at me and said, John, who is called Mark, the kingdom of God has broken into this world. Will you follow me? At those words, I bowed my head in shame, unable to look at him. Until at last I muttered out, I, I can't, Lord. I'm not worthy of you. He put his hand on my shoulder. My gaze met his again, and he said, My son, I did not call you because you are worthy. I called you because you are mine. You are mine not because of who you are, but because of who I am. You are mine not because of what you have done, but because of what I have done. And then he said, Do you remember the last time that I saw you? This was the moment that I had feared. Jesus was bringing up my betrayal, my abandonment. But I answered and said, yes, I fled from you cold, naked, and afraid. And he smiled and said, yes. But do you not remember when I first saw you? You fled from me cold, naked, and afraid. But now I tell you that my father clothes you with joy because I have overcome. My father clothes you with grace and joy because I have defeated the grave. John, who is called Mark, will you follow me? And as the depths of the news that I just heard began to sink in, I fell to my knees and said, yes, my Lord, I will follow you. For what else can I do? Smiling at me, he breathed on me and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It took me a moment to realize that he had done this exact same thing with every disciple in that room. That every single one of us had approached Jesus with the same mix of joy and dread. And Jesus had forgiven each 
and every one of us. See, Jesus' sacrifice for us, his resurrection for us, was not just to cancel out our sin. It was also to overcome our shame. And this morning, if you find yourself in a place where you are overcome by your shame, that you have tried to follow Jesus in the past, but you've screwed up, you've ran the other direction, you've stopped following him, and you think that there's no way that he could possibly take you back. The good news of the resurrection, the good news of John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23 is that there is forgiveness, that there is grace, that there is joy that God clothes us with. That grace was available to us thousands of years ago and was available to you this morning. Clothe yourself with that grace. Clothe yourself with that joy. For he has overcome. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for the joy that you have given us. That we are now able to celebrate your resurrection. God, we are so thankful that the grave has been defeated, that the enemy has been defeated. And God, we ask that we would be able to join our voices with the choirs of those who have gone before us, singing your praises, worshiping you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. God, we love you and we thank you for the good news of Easter. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.